welcome to Cinematicon Ex Mortis, the horror movie discussion podcast hosted by Kenny and Heather. And for this month's episode, we are looking at a motion picture called Psycho from 1960, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Some basic facts about this movie. It was released in 1960, like I said, directed by Hitchcock. It was written by Joseph Stefano, based on the novel of the same title by Robert Block. It stars Janet Leigh, Anthony Perkins, and Vera Miles. It was edited by George Tomasini, with a musical score by Bernard Herrmann. I guess I'll jump into a plot summary here, and I will say as well, the biggest plot spoilers in the world are coming like this is the movie that of all the movies you do not want to be spoiled on if somehow you have made it this far in your life without knowing what happens in psycho please turn this podcast off and go watch it do not let us spoil it for you because it's amazing uh but here we go during a steamy tryst between secretary marion crane and her boyfriend sam loomis it becomes clear that the relationship may not work out because loomis cannot afford to marry marion later that day a real estate tycoon comes into marion's office and leaves forty thousand dollars in cash to be deposited in the bank rather than depositing the money marion decides to make a run for it and sets off from phoenix arizona to sam's home in fairvale california Having accidentally turned off the highway, she rents a room at the Bates Motel, now mostly abandoned since the main road was diverted some years back. Over sandwiches, she gets to know the motel's proprietor, Norman Bates, an unusual fellow who complains about having to take care of his mentally unstable mother, and then spies on her through a peephole as she undresses in her room. Then, in a shocking turn of events, spoiler, 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 Marion is brutally stabbed to death while showering, apparently by Norman's mother. Over the next few days, Marion's boyfriend Sam, sister Lila, and a private detective named Arbogast try to solve the mystery of her disappearance, making life difficult for Norman, who tries to cover up the murder so that his mother won't be put away. Okay, so, uh, maybe I'll start by asking, like, what's your history with this movie, Heather? When did you first see it? Uh, are you saying that for the sake of the podcast, or do you really not remember? Uh, I think we've established, uh, <laughs> my ability to remember past events is well, pretty limited. I think you know what I'm going to say next then, don't you? Did you see it for the first time with me? Yep. Oh, cool. I think, you know, I was trying to do the math on that the other day. I think it's like, it's like this have been like 15 years ago when we watched this. Yeah. So it's kind of a while. Um, and I haven't seen it since then. Wow. So, yeah. So it was a lot like seeing it for the first time again, especially because I'm older and there's things that I just couldn't understand the first time I saw it, you know? Mm. Like, I definitely didn't pick up on, on a lot of the things that was going on between Marion and Sam. Like, I didn't get, you know, the whole, like, I can't afford to get married thing. Like, you know, it's like... Were you like, hey, look, they're wrestling in bed. I wonder No! That I wasn't, is. like, seven when we watched it. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't... There, there was just a lot of that exchange that just went over my head. Um, right, like, that. It, that it's establishing that she needs the money. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and stuff like that happened throughout the whole movie where I was like, oh. So I enjoyed it a lot more this time. Cool. Yeah, I think I'm kind of on the other side of the spectrum as far as when and how often I've seen this movie. This is one of the movies I've probably seen the most out of anything in my life. I've seen it, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 times. Hmm. Um, I first saw it when I was a kid. Uh, my mom is a big Hitchcock fan. So I watched, you know, a lot of Hitchcock movies growing up. And uh, I just, I don't know, I've seen this one a lot of times. It's one that, you know, if I meet somebody new and they haven't seen it before, then we got to watch it. Hmm. I don't like watching movies with people if it means a lot to me. Um... 
because if if there's a movie that I really love that much, like they're probably gonna talk and shit, and it's gonna like make me hate them forever. So me watching movies with people has become really complicated. So I kind of just like if a movie means a lot to me, I I, I know that I can't watch that with like anyone, which is well, maybe a little bit strange, but. Well, if we're watching a movie and you're just yammering on the whole time, we're just not friends anymore. I don't know. So I feel like I that's... might do that to you a little bit sometimes. I don't think so. No? Nah. Okay, that's good. But that is that is frustrating to me, too, when you're watching someone with... Yeah. Watching something with someone and they're obviously not paying attention because they're talking. Right. And it's like, you know, like, um, you're... You're you're missing it. Like I I can remember being in actual fights with people, like, you know. Yeah. And then they're like, they don't get it. Like, why are you so mad? <laughs> it's like because because I'm trying to show you this important thing, and you ruined it. Yeah. Anyway. So, hmm. sounds like you did enjoy watching the film. That I did? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, was, what did you like about it? Um, well, even though this time, like, the plot twist was expected, it still is kind of shocking, in a way. Um, mm -hmm. do you know what I'm trying to say? It's like, even though I know that, once again, spoiler, uh, Norman Bates's mother is dead, and... Norman Bates has like a mother um like alternate identity it still is pretty it still is like I don't know I it's almost like I felt like I don't want to say the word that I can't say <laughs> um do you know what word I'm talking about uh the s word is it like a racial epithet no never mind um <laughs> Forget it. Um, oh, is it a word that it's hard for you to pronounce it? Yeah. Oh, what was that word? <laughs> it was an S word. <laughs> I don't want to say it because I know I'm, I've been saying it wrong my whole life. So I know that the way that it's occurring in my brain right now is not how it should be said. So um, leave a comment on this web zone. Please if you know don't. What word Heather's thinking about. Please don't fucking about. do that. Please <laughs> do not do that. Um, <laughs> uh so it was very mysterious and it, it, you know when he jumps out wearing his mom's clothes i'm still like oh my god a little bit even though like i totally knew that was coming so it's still really exciting to watch even if you've seen it before and you know what's gonna happen yeah and it's so good and it's another one of those movies that you kind of need to see more than once because you're going to notice things in the rewatch that you didn't the first time. Oh, definitely. So yeah, I, I think really um, liked, I really liked picking up on new stuff. Mm -hmm. There's a scene in this movie that is maybe my favorite scene in a movie. Okay. Uh, this isn't my favorite movie, but like some of the stuff in this movie, I've seen it so much that I'm kind of like, okay, okay. Like Norman uh after the murder trying to clean up all the evidence and everything it's like okay i've seen this yeah. enough that, but that's the only part in the movie where i was like you know this is a little this is a little bit too long you did yeah. too much here we get the point and they kind of drug that's the only scene i felt like they drug on too long but it's so hitchcock right like hitchcock is throughout his whole oeuvre he's obsessed with crime and and how to get away with the crime right how would you cover up a murder um that's like God, in every movie of his creepy motherfucker <laughs> so of course he's got to go into all the minute details of how norman cleans up yeah. after he's killed marion but um my favorite scene is uh do you want to guess what it is Oh, man. I wish you would have asked me that earlier so I could have thought about it for a while. Um, 
It's gonna be something. No, there's no way I can be able to predict it because you pick up. You you pick weird shit. Yeah. Is well, the, I don't know. Does it have how to do with is. him? Is it? Does it have to do with him eating the candy? No. Oh, never mind then. It's the scene where Norman and Marion have dinner. Well, actually, only Marion eats in his uh, the the room right behind the. Uh, like the check-in desk. The parlor. The parlor, right. At the yes. Bates Motel. Okay, yeah. Uh, I, I could have guessed that, I guess, yeah. I can watch that scene a hundred times. It's just, it's so fascinating. Uh, Tony Perkins is just an m- amazing actor, and this performance is, I think, like the greatest performance in any horror film. He's mm. so nuanced, and there's mm. so much going on and I think that's one of the scenes where you get a lot more of it out of it on a rewatch once you know what how fucked up he is. Yeah. Um, but the 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 wonderful thing about it is that he's so human at the same time, and he's so sympathetic. He's so he's pathetic, and uh, and he actually in that scene really forges a kind of emotional bond with Marion, like she figures out what he's going through and it sort of gives her a bit of wisdom for her own life right she realizes that they're kind of similar and that they've both found themselves in a trap he's trapped Mm. with his mother and this uh dilapidated or at least um abandoned motel and she has just made this really stupid decision to steal this money and run away and uh she realizes she needs to do do what it takes to uh get out of her trap but their back and forth is just so fascinating to watch and janet lee is fantastic in that scene too i think um but just the way that those two actors play off of each other the the screenplay is so sharp there too um i don't know everything about that scene so good yeah it is really good because he seems like such a like an innocent little boy almost um you know what i mean yeah he's just there's something sweet about him yeah but then there's also this edge to him right like when she suggests that he should put his mother into a yeah you can see like this is the first inkling of like there's something else going on there mm-hmm. he really kind of goes off on her he's like mm-hmm. you know oh those people they always suggest with their clucking tongues and he it's like and she's already apologizing she's already like okay i'm sorry i didn't mean and he just keeps going like he it's like she's not even there anymore he's just on his own train of thought for a while and then he just switches like a like on a dime he suddenly goes he sits back in his chair and he goes of course i've suggested it myself and and he's like totally no longer angry at her or anything and he's like uh introspective all of a sudden and it's like whoa you know this guy mm-hmm. he's got he's got so many things going on mm-hmm. and it's it's a little uh unnerving but yeah you're not afraid of him at that point mm-hmm. so um any so what would be like your favorite aspect of the picture still want to use that word that i can't say <laughs> um i think it is very uh, unpredictable it's suspense isn't it yeah i figured it out it's suspense all right good for you congratulations um i i just think that it's very unpredictable and it's the it's really well written and it's so different from anything else yeah, this structure is really weird. Mm-hmm. And I kind of appreciate that because you really can't tell what's going to happen next, you know, if you haven't seen it before. Yeah, I mean, they really kill the protagonist halfway into the movie. Yep. Uh, it's hard to think of another movie that does that. Like, a lot of movies since this have tried to emulate Psycho, like um, Scream, for instance. Have you seen Scream? Uh, I saw that like 
when it came out, so don't ask me any questions about that one. Well, they tried to do a very similar thing by um, casting a very well-known actress. And Which one? It, Drew Barrymore? Yeah. It's Drew Barrymore, uh, and she gets killed in the first scene, but they didn't... They hid that, you know, like, she's on the poster and stuff. So you were supposed to think that she's going to be the main character, but she gets killed in the first scene. But even that, I think, is not as extreme because she's not the protagonist for the first half of the film. She's only in the first scene, and then we meet our main character. Mm -hmm. It's really a, a bold writing decision to kill off your main character halfway through the story, because what do you do then? And I'm not completely sold that psycho has the answer for what you do then because i do think the second half of the film is weaker than the first half well it is yeah um and it's because uh sam and lila are not as interesting of characters as marion was sam isn't a character he's just bland and boring and they're both just like very determined that's all i can say like their emotion in every scene is like we have to find marion but they don't really develop them much more than that like they're characters who want to find out what happened to marion and that's kind of where their motivation and character begins and ends um i was watching the behind and behind the scenes uh features on my home video release of psycho uh and the writer joseph stefano was talking about how hitchcock came to him partway through shooting and said we've decided that the film is too long so either you can make a bunch of little cuts to different scenes or you can pick like a big scene to cut out and he didn't really feel like he could cut any of the big scenes so he made a bunch of little cuts wherever he thought he could to the dialogue and then he sent that back to hitch and then hitch came back and said actually we still need to cut a a major scene out so you have to pick Mm -hmm. and so he picked a scene that he said was between lila and sam just the two of them where they talk about marion and how they've i don't know it's like how they both lost somebody and they kind of bond over that so i Mm -hmm. guess they were gonna end up together in the end or something like we're supposed to assume that uh they kind of bond over their shared experience of marion's death but that was cut so i feel like maybe the film would be stronger if they had kept that even though it would be a little longer it would be we would have a little more of a reason to care about those characters that makes sense i think that would have been better if they kept that in yeah, I, he said that he didn't think they even shot the scene, so who knows? Oh, okay. Um, they cut it while they were still shooting, so... I sort like of it was... picked up on little inklings about that anyway, yeah. so it would have been natural and fine if it had been in there. Yeah, but he said it was like the only scene in the film that kind of could be cut out, and the rest of the movie still makes sense. Well, it's, you know, his art, so he would know. Have you seen a lot of Hitchcock? Yeah, I'd say, yeah. Yeah, I have. It's an interesting film in his filmography. So he had already switched over to color. And his last couple pictures were in color. I think they were Vertigo and North by Northwest, which is, it's quite a string of films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he went back to black and white for Psycho. He also filmed it with the... Uh, the crew of his television show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, mm-hmm. uh, for a very low budget. So it was really kind of a departure from the direction that his career had had been going in. What a weirdo. Yeah. But I, I think it, it really, really works, the black and white. Like, um, have you seen the remake? No. I don't... N- no. No, no. I not saw the remake a, a long a time of, ago. Not a fan of remakes. Yeah, so... Well, this is an interesting one, though, because it's a a shot-for-shot remake by Gus oh. Van Sant. 
Um, he made it in the 1990s. And to this day, I think no one knows why, really. Um, <laughs> like, come on, you're, you're Gus Van Sant. You're like this famous director. Why would you choose to just not like literally remake someone else's film like set up the camera in the same place and have the shots take the same amount of time have the same everything the same score it's like that'd be like what but he did it in color instead of in black and white and my point is that it's so much better in black and white so like this year so Cher released an album of abba cover songs Okay. That's what it reminds me of. Did she do it like that? Did she do like, you know, note for note covers? Like where she I, didn't yeah, change anything? They're pretty much just the same songs. You know what I mean? It's like pop. It's a pop star covering pop songs. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, like, cool, but why though? Yeah, I, I, that's how I feel about cover songs too, is like... I like cover songs where they... They're like take, changed. They do it in like a different genre or... yeah they they yeah. change the key from a major to a minor key or something like they do something interesting right um ch- like drastically change the instrumentation or like um mm-hmm. johnny cash's cover of hurt where he just did it, right. did it with the acoustic guitar it's like i don't know there's a lot of things you can do to have it be the same song but uh have you look at it in a very different way and yeah mm-hmm. i don't understand when when they just do a cover and it's like or a whole album of covers. <laughs> right. And I guess if you really like the band, then it would be okay. Uh, apparently Cher is super into ABBA. And I mean, like, cool, but... Uh, you know no, I mean, if, if, if you like the band that's, that's doing the covering, mm-hmm. then you might enjoy it because you, you prefer their sound to the original. But... In the case of Psycho, like they cast uh, Vince Vaughn as Norman oh, Bates. Oh God, I knew this. I knew. And about he's just, this. you know, he's he's no Tony Perkins. He's like, fucking Vince Vaughn. Yeah, he's actually, in my opinion, a terrible casting choice because That's really, a really one weird of the choice. one of the most brilliant decisions they made on Psycho was in the book by Robert Block. Norman is middle aged, overweight. He's kind of a slob. He drinks a lot. Hmm. He's he's not a particularly likable character, even before you know he starts murdering people. And they decided throw all that in the trash. Instead, Norman is this young, attractive, boyish, uh, likable guy who has this dark underside. And that just makes the movie, really. I mean, the, yeah. our fascination and and sympathy for Norman is, I think, the emotional core of the film and what makes it a movie that you can keep going back to. Um, and, and Tony Perkins is, is perfect for that, right? Like, he, ha- he, he is a master of his craft, but he also just has this... this puppy dog face you know like he's mm-hmm. he, he he's so lovable and vince vaughn to me is almost the opposite like i'm sure he's a fine actor but i just look at him and i want to punch him he's just he looks like an asshole i i'm pretty sure he is an asshole i think he i think he is and i don't want to say <laughs> on the record i um, do vince vaughn <laughs> is an asshole i don't know vince vaughn personally but yeah i've, I've heard stories Mm-hmm. Um, and he seems like an asshole in his in the way he acts, right? He he kind of is an abrasive person, abrasive. Uh, and he always he plays really douchey characters too. So like exactly, yeah. So why it's, do you think it's a that very is? strange. It's a very strange casting choice. Yeah, and it doesn't work. So it's it's kind of like seeing. It's like one of those cover songs where they just do the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Only the guitarist is you know hitting wrong notes and the drummer is off key off the off the tempo and everything so it's like so a shittier cover exactly right yeah it's like an <laughs> inferior band trying to play mm. so this is all from memory i i haven't seen that film recently so maybe if i saw it again i would like it but i i very much doubt it 
<laughs> anyway, the point of all that, I guess, is just the how important it is that it's in black and white. What a great decision that was. I think it was more for budgetary reasons and because Hitchcock thought that the gore wouldn't work in color, like it'd be too much for the censors. Yeah, I also wondered um, when she was getting stabbed in the shower, the the blood looks really dark, like it's not even red, like it's darker than red. Um, and I wondered if maybe it isn't um, because they knew they were shooting in black and white and it wouldn't matter. I just wondered. It was chocolate sauce. Really? So I was right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Okay, I knew it. Yeah, so I think he did it for pragmatic reasons mostly, but it really works out aesthetically, I think. Like, there's a lot of scenes at the Bates Motel where it's daytime, but in black and white, it still has that creepy atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Whereas in color, it's like, it's a bright, sunny California day. It kind of takes the spookiness out of the scene. Right. So there are a couple of motifs that everybody who talks about this movie talks about one is birds there's mm -hmm. birds all over the place in this and we're gonna do an episode on the birds which was hitchcock's next film uh pretty soon but there are birds all over in psycho too so marion is her name is marion crane a crane is a kind of bird they're the stuffed birds in norman's office of course and he tells her that she eats like a bird. Mm -hmm. And then there are paintings of birds in Marion's uh, cabin at the Bates Motel. Mm -hmm. So what do you make of all those birds everywhere? So I assume you're going to tell me that the bird is some kind of metaphor. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, you are. <laughs> I don't know. I Honestly, I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. I mean, he he said something about he likes to, you know, taxidermy is his hobby, but he only likes to, to do birds because uh, beasts, I don't know, freak him out or something. What was the he line? Said, what does he say? He says he likes doing birds because they're kind of passive to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so they look well stuffed. Okay. I definitely think the the fact that his hobby is taxidermy is like maybe a it's big clue. Maybe it's that um thing about being trapped and birds can fly and so they're free and he's like mm. in a cage, you know? Yeah. Like like that conversation he had with Marion. That's a good point. They're talking about being in a cage, and right. it might make you think of a birdcage. Yeah. Which is kind of like those intersecting horizontal lines could also sure, be like yeah. jail, jail bars or bars of a cage. Yep. That's a good point. So. But, like, the fact that he, he stuffs animals for a hobby, I think, is... Yep, it's definitely foreshadowing. Foreshadowing that what he did to his mother. Mm-hmm. Even and though he did just, a shitty job, because... She was basically just a, like, decayed corpse. Like, she didn't look preserved to me at all. Yeah. But I guess well, that we all would have, if this was 1960, everyone would just be, like, beside themselves if they saw what, like, an actual preserved human being looked like hmm. at that stage. You know, that would be way too gory. Yeah, I think, um, I think it was... Janet Lee and the behind the scenes who said that they showed her it was either her or Vera Miles. I can't remember if they had Vera Miles interviewed in it. But anyway, one of them was saying uh they showed her a bunch of skulls that they were going to thinking about using for mother mm -hmm. and they they picked the one based on the biggest scream that she she made when they showed it to her. Oh, okay then. So she screamed the loudest at the at the one that was in the film. <laughs> All right. So they they weren't going based on uh, anatomical accuracy, I guess. Okay. But I what I mean is about the taxidermy is like 
Norman's psychosis involves him being unable to accept that mm. someone's dead. Like he has to preserve her and keep her around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, which there's kind of like a tradition of that in literature. Like, I don't know, it makes me think of a Robert Browning poem called Porphyria's Lover, which is about this this crazy guy who is in love with this girl, and so he decides to poison her and preserve her with chemicals so that she'll be the same forever because he doesn't want her to get old. Um, okay. And then... That reminds me of that guy that had the corpse bride. Mmm, yeah, that guy. You know, corpse bride guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doesn't everybody know him? Okay. There is a guy. I saw it on YouTube. Yeah. He's... Did you see that on YouTube? No, I heard it in a podcast. Okay. I think I heard it. I think I knew about it before that, but yeah. This is a guy in like the American South, right? In like the early 20th century. Was he in the South? Maybe. I feel like he was. Yeah. He was like in Florida or Louisiana Flo- or something. Yeah, he... it was a Florida thing. Yep, that's right. Yeah, it sounds like Florida. It sounds like something. <laughs> it Florida was Florida man. man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Florida man takes corpse bride. Anyway, and then there's a, a William Faulkner story called A Rose for Emily. That's about this woman who is a kind of a hermit after her family members die. Uh, she's left. She's inherited their gothic house and she lives there by herself but then she is gonna get married to this guy and uh then it seems like they're arguing or he's trying to break it off and then nobody ever sees him again and then like 20 or 30 years later she dies and when they go into her house they find that she has his corpse in the bed it's been preserved there for decades okay because yeah. he was trying to leave her and she just decided no you can't <laughs> <laughs> that's one way to win an argument so you know th- this idea is kind of a something that's been around but it also perhaps has a real life inspiration in a serial killer named Ed Gein. Do you know anything about him? What do you think? I'm guessing. Take a guess. I'm guessing that it rings a bell. Yeah. What do you want to know about him? Well, what do you know? Uh, well, Ed Gein was, uh, he, he was born on a farm. Um, his dad died and then it was just him and his mom and his brother and his their mother was like extremely overbearing very religious uh believed that like women were dirty and were going to tempt you to the devil so stay away from women so um they really only hung out with their mom and Boy's best friend is his mother. Yeah. So uh, after the dad died, it was just the three guys. And then one day, Ed came to the sheriff and was like, my brother's missing. Help me find my brother. And then everybody in town pretty much came up to help Ed look for his brother. But Ed led the sheriff like pretty much right to the body, which had been burned but then later on they discovered there's also some like blunt force trauma going on so eh. what it looks like is that ed murdered his brother so that it would just be him and his mom um then his mother died and then he killed a couple girls in town that's how they caught him Right. Well, and and after his mother died, he kind of preserved all of her rooms exactly as they were, right? Right. Yes. And you know, once they busted him for killing this girl, she was like the owner of a hardware store, I think. Uh, they discovered the head of another woman and a bunch of various body parts and stuff from corpses that he dug up from the graveyard. That he would use 
to dress up as the corpses. Like he would take the faces off and make masks and stuff like that. Right. I didn't know how much you wanted to get into that stuff, like the nipple belt and all that good stuff. Um, yeah, basically just making all kinds of shit out of body parts. He made like not just clothes and stuff, but he was making like lamp shades and like other tools and stuff out of bones and yeah he had like a table that had like human leg bones for Mm -hmm. the legs and they think that he was probably eating people as as you know is not my favorite subject in the world you know i really think that that part of it is overblown oh yeah honestly yeah i think i I don't know just in my in my experience of reading about serial killers People really love the idea of them eating people. I but they... do not. I do not like that idea at all. And so if there's ever a hint of that, like, for example, Jeffrey Dahmer. What does everyone know about Jeffrey Dahmer? That he ate that he people. he ate people. But he barely ate anybody. <laughs> um, like, that, was, I, that is like please, a footnote in the life of not, Jeffrey Dahmer. That is not the quote he... that you want following you around. <laughs> He he did so much weirder stuff than eat people. He did. He was like drilling into people's brains to try to make them into sex zombies. Yeah, he was like pouring acid into their brain holes. Yeah. And that's pretty bad. Yeah, and then maybe he ate somebody's finger or something. And so he becomes Jeffrey the cannibal. So I think I don't know. I think there's there's just really an appetite for to par- uh, is the that a fucking that joke? There's an appetite, a public appetite for a serial killer <sighs> How did cannibal. How get here? Much more than there is a supply of them in the real world. I don't... I, mm, nope. No. Thank <laughs> you. Anyway. Um, we, can, we can move on. So I brought up Ed Gein because the news of his atrocities was just coming out at the same time that Robert Block was writing the novel Psycho. Mm-hmm. And apparently Block said in interviews later, like, oh, well, I wrote the book and then I heard the news and I was like, wow, what a weird coincidence. Bullshit. But no one believes him. Uh, so <laughs> I think... Uh, That's a weird thing to lie about. It's like, it's okay to be inspired by something. Like, why does yeah. it matter? Like, chill. I don't know, and maybe, well, and the other, he references Ed Gein in the book. There's, like, an actual mention of him at one point. So he definitely heard about him while he was writing the book, but he claims that he already, Mm -hmm. you know, had the whole idea of everything, but... All right, sure, whatever. Yeah, whatever. So this would make Psycho one of three classic horror films based, however loosely, on Ed Gein, the other two being... Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Silence of the Lambs, which we already covered mm-hmm. on this horror movie discussion podcast. This, I feel like this is the most important one in reference to Ed Gein. Mm. Because the whole thing with Ed Gein was about his mother. One thing that it's often credited with is pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable to see in a mainstream Hollywood film. Uh, like I said, one reason it was shot on black and white was because of the gore. Um, but besides the violence, are there other ways that you noticed that it, the film seems kind of subversive or extreme for a movie made in 1960? I guess it was a little bit risque with all the fucking lingerie and shit. Um, sure. Like the opening scene. Yeah. I, I, I saw it and I'm like, oh, this is, oh my, you know, this is pushing it. Yeah, and there's kind of like a motif, too, of um, voyeurism, right? Like, the film opens with Hitchcock wanted it to be one seamless shot that starts with the the whole cityscape of uh, Phoenix and then zooms in and goes into Marion's window. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the technology just wasn't there to do that, so instead there's like a series of dissolves where we get closer and closer and then we go into the window and into the room Mm -hmm. but clearly the idea is of someone who's like outside sort of peeking in and we're seeing this very intimate scene Mm -hmm. um and then of course norman peeks through the hole in the wall at at marion as she's undressing Mm -hmm. 
So that's kind of, it's again, it's like another thing that Hitchcock is obsessed with in all of his films Mm -hmm. is voyeurism. Like Rear Window. Yeah, and like Vertigo. But, uh, you know, I think that's, that's kind of naughty to have people it is very naughty. with their clothes off, off and <laughs> yeah. looking at them. I remember something you mentioned the first time we watched this movie about the lingerie. Hmm. Do you remember what it is? Uh, no, I don't remember that conversation. <laughs> oh, about, my. The, about the colors? <laughs> yeah, the... Behind the scenes that I just watched talked about that. So I do know what you're talking about. So do you want to okay. explain? So you said the first time we watched this, in the beginning, Marion's wearing white lingerie, which is like symbolism for being like innocent and like good. Mm-hmm. And then later on, she's wearing black lingerie, like after she makes a decision to, to leave town with the money. Like, ooh, mm. bad Marion now. Yeah, and they they talk about that in the behind the scenes. Like that was a decision that Hitchcock made with the um, the costume designer was like, oh, she should have a black one in this scene because now she's stolen the money. Yeah, she. I also I noticed that she also switched to a black purse, so it's all mm-hmm. very aesthetic. You know, I get, I just thought of another potential meaning for that mm, what uh, change, which is. Like the black and white maybe indicate two sides to her character, which would create a parallel with Norman. Because I don't know, this most recent time watching it, I was just noticing all the ways in which Marion is kind of similar to Norman. Well, he said Um, something to her like, haven't you ever just gone mad or something? And she was like, yeah. Yeah, actually, I just did. Yeah. Yeah. So... So, yeah, they both have, like, these bouts of insane behavior, although in very different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're both engaged in a kind of cover-up, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Norman has to cover up his murders, or or his mother's murders, and uh, Marion has to try to hide the fact that she's stolen this money. And they both really suck at it. Uh, they're really bad at their job, basically. Like, Marion is uh, the worst criminal ever. <laughs> like, she just takes the money yeah. and runs, and inst- and she, like, uh, sees her boss, and he sees her while she's still in the city. And so it's, like, already, like, okay, just turn around and go back and pretend like nothing happened. Yeah. But, no, she keeps going, and then she's got the cop, following her and then she decides to like sell her car and get a new car presumably so that the cops can't tail her but he's like but, standing right yeah, there watching the street <laughs> um so that's not gonna work um, but then i remembered that um in those days the different counties didn't speak to each other yeah so Sure, but I mean she's just she's just really bad at hiding the fact yeah, she, that she's she on the run too when she's talking to the salesman. He, it's like instantly clear that she's done something wrong or she's running away from like, something. Like literally everyone she comes in contact with like knows immediately that there's something wrong here. Right. So except for Norman, who's kind of got his own issues. He, yeah, he's got <laughs> his own shit going on. He doesn't have time to worry about her problems. But uh so she's bad and then norman is similarly a really bad liar um so like when arbogast the detective comes to question him you know all that norman had to do was tell the truth really until the point of the murder right he could have told the truth about she came and stayed in the hotel and she seemed kind of like there was something going on i didn't know what it was we ate sandwiches and then she went to bed, and then in the morning, she wasn't there. She must have left. Like, that's all he had to say, right? But mm-hmm. instead, he at first claims that no one has stayed there for weeks. Then he lets it slip that there was somebody there a week ago. And then he mm-hmm. denies that he recognizes her or that she signed in. And then she did sign in because there's her name. And it's like, Norman, 
you need to work on your <laughs> your lying game. Well, your cover like, up game. He's probably not used to like his social skills aren't very good in general. Right. Because he doesn't see people very often. But anyway, so that's something that's similar about them. It's like that's kind of the situations we see them in are similar in that they're both trying to cover up something and doing a bad job of it. Um, we also get like their interior monologues in a way, although we don't realize that it is for Norman when we hear his mother speaking, like that's in his head. Mm -hmm. um, with Marion, we get these uh, long close-ups of her while she's driving and we hear the voices of other characters as she's imagining them like what they would be saying about her now that she's gone like where did she go and what you know uh stuff like that and there's one one moment in particular where um so she's stolen this money from a real estate tycoon who's a bit of an ass uh so as she's driving she's imagining what he he'll be saying about her and he's saying something like, you know, I'll catch her no matter what I what she does. I'll give her. Better. And and as she's imagining him blustering, she has this kind of smile creep across her face. Um, that is kind of it's like a smirk, right? And that's the. It's very similar to what we get at the very end of the film when uh, Norman, who is now just Norman's mother, uh, is sitting in the room in the police office police station um and he we hear his internal monologue and it's the mother speaking and she says i'm not even going to squat that fly mm -hmm. they'll see and they'll say why she wouldn't even harm a fly and that that creepy ass smile creeps across his face it's like the same shot so i don't know i don't know what to do with that exactly but i think it's it's kind of fascinating that to me that Marion and Norman have all these sort of parallels. Yeah. I didn't notice that the first watch through either, obviously. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, so the guy with the money, he said that thing about, like, I never carry more money than I could throw away or something. He made it more sound like... More than I like, could afford to lose, he yeah, says. Yeah, yeah. So he made it sound like this $40,000 to him is nothing. So, like, yeah. what an idiot. First of all. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, of course, she wouldn't. I mean, obviously, she starts to, like, you can see the panic and stuff set in, but at first, she's thinking, you know, like, well, he doesn't even care about it, so I need it to go be with my boyfriend. So, yeah. I think it's really cool, though, that we get this kind of internal monologue, but none of it is in her voice. Like, it's all just what she is imagining other people oh, saying yeah. about her. Yeah, 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 yeah. None of it is in the first person. Yeah, that was cool. I liked that. That was, unique. and that's kind of like Norman as well, right? Like we hear in the side of his head, it's his mother's voice. Right. He's also that's kind of part of his madness, in the same way that it's maybe part of Marion's, is that someone else's voice has invaded his brain space, and that's sort of he's kind of obsessed with always imagining what his mother would be saying and thinking about him yep rather than having his own thoughts we've met a bunch of serial killers on this podcast uh fictional ones we covered misery which had annie wilkes we covered sounds of the lambs of course which had buffalo bill and uh our friend hannibal the cannibal have you noticed any interesting patterns or similarities or differences with uh, Norman and these other fellows? Well, there's definitely two sides to all of them. Hmm. Yeah. Why? What are you? What are you trying to tell me? I don't know. I think I was thinking about Norman's psychosis, mm -hmm. and it struck me that a lot of the time with these killers it seems like there's a sort of freudian thing going on where there's the id right like the secret base desires 
that are kept under wraps and it's that controlled version of the person that we that the outside world gets to see but then in the in the lair in the underground place that kind of signifies the id that's when the uh sadistic evil dark desires come out like with buffalo bill we were talking about how like everything happens in the basement like his evil doings and then when he's on the ground floor where people can see then he acts like a normal person mm-hmm. um what interests what interested me about norman is in a way he's kind of the opposite like norman the persona norman is the one who desires he's the one who uh has the Mm. uh, who's who's spying on marion that's not mother looking through the peephole right that's norman Mm -hmm. and mother is like the super ego the so in freudian psychology the idea is that as children we kind of just start off as like little ids like all we want is we just desire things and we cry if we don't get it you know like uh we're just little balls of desires and at first it's our parents that have to come in and say no no you can't have that and then eventually as you mature you internalize that parent the sort of voice of the parent saying no no and you start saying no no to yourself and you know repressing those desires and you know self-control basically and the mother is that for norman she's the the superego she's coming in and saying no you can't have what you want and she does that by murdering the object of his desire mm-hmm. um so that's kind of a different it's a different take on the the killer i think from what we often see that's really interesting it's really like the the excess of i don't know self-control repression that has that turns norman into a killer Hmm. rather than the lack of it yeah i never would have thought of that but i do think that norman's mother kind of gets a bad rap what especially in the sequels like they treat her as if it's all her fault like she like i don't know like the the idea that she was crazy and that her craziness infected norman or something like she's responsible for that i don't get that out of the the original film because we never see her in the original film all we see is norman's version of her which is an exaggerated insane version of mother like Mm -hmm. mother never killed anybody she was just like a I mean, she was probably a controlling woman, mm-hmm. but you know, she probably had an unhealthy relationship with her son. But she mm-hmm. wasn't this monster, you know. I mean, as far as we know, there's something very self-serving about Norman's version of mother. I think, right, the way that she just endlessly uh, attacks him and ridicules him. And then he's, I don't know, I feel like the Norman that we see, like the normal non-serial killer Norman that that he appears to be, is also in a way maybe a falsehood. You know, he's like the his own Im- self-image of himself. You know, he's the perfect son who would always do anything for his mother. In, real, in reality, he murdered her. And it's, I don't know, I get the sense that he, you know, that that crime was so horrible to him that he kind of retreated into what is ultimately a fantasy. It's a, it's a very, like I said, a very self-serving version of who he is and who his mother was, where he is perfectly dutiful and she is kind of perfectly awful. Mm. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the reality was much more gray. This whole thing is Norman's narrative of events. Yeah. Like we're, when we're hearing his mother or, you know, yeah, uh, seeing her, him as her, that's his idea of what she was. Right. Which I, I, I don't think we can trust that. Mm. So I guess we can talk about the ending. 
-hmm. A lot of people complain about the ending. Uh, basically, a psychiatrist shows up and explains what happened in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's almost just talking to the audience. Like, he's talking to the other characters, but it's pretty clear that he's like, well, folks, I'm sure that you're a little confused by what you just saw. Let me explain it to you. And then he, he goes into the details of Norman's life, which he claims that he just heard from Norman's mother when he interviewed Norman. Mm -hmm. But it, these are details, including the fact that Norman murdered her and, and all these things. So yeah, I noticed he, that too. He must be like some kind of Sherlock Holmes because he wouldn't have heard this, this right. story from Norman's mother. He would have heard some crazy series of events and he deduced from that what really happened. Yep. But anyway, so this guy explains Norman's uh, delusions and what's really happened in the in the film, the fact that she's dead and everything. Um, and uh, a lot of people have felt that this ending, it feels sort of tacked on. Um, did it feel that way to you? Did this feel like a, an appropriate ending for the film? I really like it. Um, I guess I just appreciated confirmation about what it is they were trying to portray mm -hmm. and i just really appreciate that i think i like it too i've never had a problem with it i i get like some people want to you know leave things to the imagination and like create their own ideas about what it means or whatever i really don't i just want you to tell me because that's what keeps me up at night i'm like well is that what they meant for me to be thinking about it? You know what I mean? Like, I want to know for sure. Mm. I find myself often, after watching a movie, like, Googling it to see what other people think, to see if they think the same thing as me, because I want to know that I'm right. So I don't have the wrong idea about it. So this movie kind of Googles itself for you. Yes. It saves me a trip to Google. <laughs> yeah. I... To me, maybe it's saved just by the fact that I really like that actor. Like, he's fun to watch. <laughs> okay. He's, his ex, he's not like a boring, you know, guy in a lab coat, like in a 50s sci-fi movie, like droning on about radiation and whatever. It's like, uh, he's, he's kind of enjoying himself and it's kind of disturbing that he yeah, is because he's he talking really to two people who've just be. lost a loved one. And he's kind of just like, uh getting high on his own supply kind of like he's just so into the fact that he's solved the case that he's totally insensitive i noticed that like lila's like well is she and he's like mm, yeah like he doesn't seem <laughs> like super you know sympathetic yeah um, like she's like did he kill her and he's like he said yes and no and it's like but Norman wanted her, so the mother came and killed her. Uh, yeah, he wasn't. Um, um, it reminds me of the doctor on Arrested Development. Uh, he always like speaks in riddles and puns. Oh, I don't remember. Like it always seems like he's saying the opposite of what he's saying. It's really funny. I believe you. I just don't like um, when when Buster gets his arm bit off by the seal. Uh, they go in. You know, all they know is that Buster's been taken to the hospital and then he comes out and he says, uh, I have good news. It's, he's going to be all right. They're like, yay. And, and then Buster comes out and he's missing his hand. And they're like, oh, my God, you said he would be all right. He said, well, he's lost his left hand, so he'll he'll be all right. Oh, Jesus. That's, that's what he meant. <laughs> Fucking. Oh, that's hideous. Like, that's what this guy is kind of like. Yeah. Oh, man. But um, the very end of the film, I quite like, too. The um, Norman wrapped in the blanket, monologuing as mother. And then that dissolve, uh, where it almost imperceptibly superimposes the skull of mother on his face. Mm-hmm. And then it goes to Marion's car being dredged up out of the bog, which I think is kind of neat because it's a nice little bookend because I think the film really neatly divides into two halves. Um, and the first half 
ends when Marion's car goes into the bog and Norma is watching as it it slowly seeps in there. Um, that's the end of her story. And then the end of the second half is when it's getting dragged back up. So it's kind of like, I don't know, I, that feels very Freudian to me too, you know, like the repression pushing things down under the surface and then at the end they're like finally coming up. Mm-hmm. And I guess the other thing to talk about is Bernard Herrmann's score. How have we not mentioned the score? I don't know. You're the score guy, so you tell me. Well, uh, I will tell you that I consider this to be the greatest horror movie score ever. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. And one of the best movie scores ever made. I think Bernard Herrmann is... I mean, this isn't controversial at all, but he's, like, one of the greatest film composers ever. He's he's so amazing. And mm. and this one I, is just so cool. The thing that everybody knows, I think, is that when he heard that the film would be in black and white, he said, well, it needs a black and white score then. And so he decided to only use the string section of the orchestra. It's crazy because I, like, understand what that means. Yeah. Yeah, like 100%. That makes sense to me. Can you explain? No. (laughs) (laughs) You know how certain things... um, Have you seen that meme going around right now that says uh, warm water is round and cold water is pointy? Mm. It's like that. You don't really understand why, but that makes sense. Sure. It's like that. The coldness is like sharp. Right. Yeah, this score is often sharp. Uh, the the most famous part of it, of course, is the, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, a really kind of avant-garde thing at the time to be using yeah. the the instrument in that way. And uh, it's the most iconic horror sound ever. Yeah, but even in like the ordinary part of the score I'll, I'll use it as the intro and outro music for this episode so people would have heard a little bit of it if you somehow you haven't heard it in the rest of your life um not possible but, but you know either the the main theme too has a sort of st- these mm-hmm. sharp staccato stabs of the bum 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 yes, so yes yes uh, the whole thing is it fits perfectly what i love about it too is how lush and romantic it can be at times too um like the i i love the bit where it's like it's like i don't know it's like it's very pretty and it mm-hmm. and it constantly switches back and forth between that very violent sort of stabbing thing and then this other thing that's kind of tugging at your heartstrings and that's like the essence of of Norman Bates and of the film, I think. Yeah. It's really good. There were several times when I was watching the movie and I'm like, wow, this is fucking epic. Well, um a little birdie told me that you have another podcast. Right. It's called Hauntings and Homicide. We've literally done a crossover episode. You don't have to do this weird song and dance you're doing right now. <laughs> and our listeners can hear it wherever podcasts exist. Yes. And um, you and Selena over there have done an episode on the real life hotel that was the basis of Stanley Kubrick's film, The Shining, or I should say Stephen King's novel, The Shining, that then was the basis of uh, the Kubrick film. So, uh, you wanted to do a, another crossover episode where we talk about The Shining. Yes, I do. So, I guess uh, next time we'll I be... You're going to be like, well, too bad, because we're going to do something else. <laughs> yeah, I should have done that. <laughs> Why do you always tell me what I should have done? So, um, I, I, I'm not telling you that you should have done that. <laughs> So our viewers can join us at the Overlook Hotel. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to try to get that one out 
before Halloween. Ooh. So we can have it be our Halloween episode as well as a crossover. We can make that happen. Okay. Uh. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Ha, ha, ha.